Ooh, we have got a special episode today. This is Are You a Robot podcast and videocast. And if you don't know what we're doing here, this is a place where we can get together and tackle, address some of the greatest challenges that we have stemming from AI and other related technologies. The way that we're doing this is we get together a bunch of really smart minds and ask them questions, ask them to tell us about what they're doing in their respective fields and how we can tackle some of these big issues surrounding AI governance and AI ethics. We're trying to stimulate conversation and create best practices for the community as we move forward and AI becomes more and more a part of our daily lives. To do that, we've created a Slack workspace. Feel free to jump in it because we would love to have your voice. We'd love to know what you're working on, how you feel about things. You can find all the links to that down below in the description. And last but not least, I will say a few words about our sponsor. None of this would be possible if it weren't for Ethics Grade, the ESG benchmarking firm that is specifically focused on technological governance. Thank you to them. Feel free to check them out. The links are down below in the description also. Without further ado, well, actually, we do have further ado. So today we talked with Emily Winger, and she is just an incredible person. What she's doing, what she's working on right now is so spectacular and really humbling. For those who don't know who she is, she is currently a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago. She's a math lover through and through. She says it right away when we get into the podcast. But what she's doing at the University of Chicago, which is so interesting, is the, her work with the Fox team. And the Fox team is creating a defense mechanism against facial recognition, AI facial recognition. So some of the things that we dive into is where is this moral line? Where is the code here? Because you are creating a facial recognition deterrent, but what about those times when we actually do need facial recognition? She answers everything so eloquently. I'm just going to let her get into it. And without further ado, let's talk with Emily Winger. So, hello, Emily. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. It's an exciting, exciting time. Yeah. So, you've been doing some really cool stuff. And I want to talk a lot about these different papers that you've written and everything around what is going on with um, this facial detection and how we can go into the ethics issues of that. But before we jump into anything, I just wanted to ask quickly, how did you get into tech and more specifically this machine learning path? <laughs> yeah, it's been a, a winding road for sure. It started because I, as a kid, I just really loved math. It was something that always made sense to me and I just liked it. I never thought about it as a career, but when I was thinking about college, I realized that I would be kind of unhappy if I didn't do math. Um, so I just kept going. I studied math and physics um, in my undergrad um, and then graduated and, and worked for the government for a little while doing more math. And eventually all of these like different paths led me to a PhD in machine learning because I knew that the thing I liked most about math was that it could help people understand the world better. That's why I liked physics. It, it provided models and context for phenomenon that you see in real life. And I think machine learning does the same thing for bigger problems in different, less understood areas like society. And um, yeah, that's been kind of the driving force of, I like math because it makes sense to me and I like math because it explains the world. And that's, I think, how I ended up here. Nice. Yeah, so it's uh, tends to be the path for the mathematicians, right? Yeah. When you get real statistical and then you get into data science and then you start seeing, oh, I can do some cool stuff with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm wondering what your motivating like factors are 
for the work that you're doing right now with machine learning and AI? What mm. is it that, that drives you? Yeah, a lot, <laughs> a lot of different things. It, but to pull on a few threads, I would say it's mostly trying to understand and correct what has been perhaps not well thought through or not well done in the rapid development of AI. So I think there's been a lot of enthusiasm around this technology, which is warranted. It's really interesting and really exciting. But I think there hasn't been a lot of sort of concomitant thought about what it would mean to to do some of the things that have been done in the research world. Um, So my research is largely focused on how can we push back against some of the imbalances that, you know, have been created through the proliferation of this technology? How can we empower consumers to protect their own privacy? How can we suss out like the vulnerabilities of this technology? That kind of thing. Mm. And there's so much that I want to get into there with all of that. I think that's, it's a super noble cause, first of all, Mm. like that there's so much that we don't even know has been taken away from us. Mm. And those that are on the front line, like yourself, that see how this different technology is being used and are looking at the implications and looking at ways that we can, you can give back to the consumer as you so very well put, Mm -hmm. I think is, is super important. And like going into the privacy issue, why is that such a big issue for you? Like what is, what is something that is there that drives you in that? I mean, it, it's something that impacts everyone. It's not just an esoteric mathematical theory. It's something that impacts my nephews and my grandparents and the people that I love. Um, and that, that's really what drives me when I see that the decisions that tech companies or researchers are making are going to have negative consequences on people that I care about and the world in general. Um, that's what motivates me to try and understand what's going wrong and, and push back. Hmm. And so can you just briefly, I guess we, we jumped ahead, we got a little excited there, but can you briefly explain the different projects that you're working on so oh. those listeners have a better idea of what, what kind of cool stuff you're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say most of my research centers on the idea of privacy and security in machine learning. So we're trying to look at these systems that are being deployed in government or industry and poke holes in the ways they're being used so that we can understand where the vulnerabilities are, where the privacy risks are. So in particular, one tool we made um, is called Fox. And that tool is designed to push back against the proliferation of facial recognition technology and some of its abuses. So Fox is designed to provide consumers with some sort of um, leverage to protect their own photos that they then post on social media sites. Um, And the idea is that you use Fox and if you apply Fox to your photos, then some big tech company can't come along and scrape those photos and use them to train a machine learning model that will recognize you without Mm -hmm. your consent. And just a quick follow-up on that, Mm -hmm. how is Fox used for your photos? Is it like an app that I run my photos through or is it something that I need to, like, how does that work? It's, it, there are a couple different instantiations of it. So we do have apps that we made for Mac and Windows. Um, so those are pretty bare bones. We're not developers, so <laughs> they don't look good, but they do the job. Um, and then there's also like a command line interface. If you're a little more technical and you want to get into some of the knobs and different buttons you can press to make Fox work in more subtle ways, there's that as well. And so you mentioned that you feel like this facial recognition technology is being used or being abused by some. Mm -hmm. How do you see it being abused right now? And what is your take on that? That's a a thorny question. Um, I, I think... The ways in which I see it most risky are that it's being deployed in really important contexts, for example, like police use, without proper testing or understanding of how it performs on all individuals. So there's been a lot of talk about bias in facial recognition, so this is not a new line of thought, but 
the data sets that these models are trained on are not diverse. Like they don't really cover everyone in the population. And as a result, like these models don't don't understand what people who aren't functionally white look like. So they, they don't perform well on those kinds of people. And if you're going to deploy these systems in a broad context, in a way that's designed to impact and, you know, interface with everyone, you have to make sure your system works on everyone. You know, um, that's one small example. Uh, there are other, well, maybe it's a big example. There are others as well, but that's kind of the one that really gets me sometimes. It's just so careless. Mm. Yeah, and I think there is that tendency for us to think that, wow, there's this technology and it works. Let's apply it mm-hmm. to as much as we can. Mm-hmm. And like, let's make robots automate things and let's make facial recognition recognize people. And right now with machine learning, you know better than anyone. It's not at that stage where you can push it out on these big levels and have it be the source of truth, especially. And mm-hmm. so that is such, such a great point to, to mention. And so now with Fox, what exactly does this do? It adds a, like a, a drop or um, what, how does it work with the photos? Yeah. I guess is my question. So Fox relies on this understanding that models see images as numbers. They don't see them as the sort of shapes and colors that we look at. So because of that sort of very mechanical way of processing images, you can use the math to fool the models. Um, So basically what Fox does is it takes your picture and it adds this mathematical filter on top of it that to the human eye doesn't change much at all but to the model causes the underlying mathematical properties of the image to change so dramatically that if the model is trained on images with this dramatic distortion in its eyes, it won't actually recognize real pictures of you because they're mathematically so different from this cloaked training data that you've provided the model. Um, So that's the idea. You, You put all these kinds of pictures on social media, and then if someone takes them the model learns this distorted view of what you look like and it won't recognize you in real life. Hmm. That's so fascinating. And there's so many roads that I want to go down on this. And mm-hmm. the first one, I guess, is I remember talking to someone at a, uh, a machine learning meetup and they were saying that they are working with a fashion designer mm-hmm. to create clothes that don't let models know that you're a human. Hmm. And so I understand the applications of, yes, you don't want to let whoever it is uh, know that. But then I also see the other side, which is if there are self-driving cars, which we know there are, Mm -hmm. and they're out there and they need to identify humans, Mm and you're wearing clothes because you don't want to be identified, mm-hmm. that, that causes a bit of uh, a, <laughs> a moral bit of dilemma, a problem. right? Yeah. yeah. So I'm just wondering, like, these issues where, yeah, you want to fight against this uh, advancement, but you also want to be cognizant of some of it needs to happen, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Is that something that goes through your mind? Yeah. I mean, I certainly acknowledge that machine learning is helpful in in certain spheres and is good. Um, So, yeah, of course, I don't want every system to be just broken by these various attacks. But I think there's far more hype pushing machine learning forward right now than there is sort of reticence to step back and understand, you know, how can we consider some of the abuses that this also creates? So for for the Fox example, right, like, yeah, there are probably legitimate uses of facial recognition technology, but the use case that Fox is trying to defend against is something like uh, the company Clearview AI scraping social media photos without consent and then selling the model trained on those photos to people that you don't know about. Um, and that's like an abuse of this technology. And that's what Fox is meant to, to defend against is someone stealing your images and using them to train a machine learning model. Um, Certainly a 
legally obtained and properly vetted model would have legitimate uses. But I would argue something like Clearview, especially given its stolen database of training images, probably is less legitimate. Yeah, and that begs the question, what are some of these other illegitimate ways in your eyes of this being used? It's obvious that Clearview, mm-hmm. and especially we don't even know that that's happening. Yeah. We're just going about our daily lives and somebody is taking our data without us knowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, well, a lot of people are probably taking our data without <laughs> yeah, us knowing. Yeah, everyone some... is taking our data. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some other illegitimate ways in your eyes that, that this is being used, especially around facial recognition, mm. and how do you foresee Fox helping That's a great question. Um, The main thing that jumps to my mind is sort of the mass surveillance that happens in China, specifically like the persecution of the Uyghur minority group. There's a lot of different stories going around about how China's social credit system and especially the facial recognition component of that has been used to suppress um, and harm the Uyghur group in many ways. So I would say that's like one very, to me, powerful example of this technology being used illegitimately. Yeah, that's such a good point. And there are so many, it's hard to see that when you have this technology that is potentially, it has lots of potential for moving us forward. And like I mentioned before, I remember the, um, just the ability for us to be able to do good with it, Mm -hmm. right? And, when it's used to not do that good, it is sad to see. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm looking at like, I'm just reminded of when, and I think it was 2004. There was well, when there are terrorist attacks. Let's yeah. um, let's look at and instantly because of the surveillance that is around, mm-hmm. you can get facial ID on people. Yeah, like and the Boston Marathon bombing. That was really important. To catch yeah. suspects. Exactly. So mm-hmm. so then I'm just wondering where's the line with like would Fox then not allow that to happen? Mm, that's a great question. Yeah. So Fox is designed to protect you in a crowd. So it's designed to work best in the setting that I've previously described where you have your images on social media Someone comes in, scrapes them, along with a bunch of other people, and trains a model. Fox does not work as well when there is a smaller number of classes in the model that's being trained. So if, if someone's like specifically seeking to train a model that recognizes you, Fox doesn't work as well, simply because the lack of other classes to distract the model prevents this mathematical distortion from really fooling the model. Um, So that's one setting. And then the other point is like, you know, if the U.S. government really or any government really wanted to find someone, they could hire a private investigator and take pictures of them and train a model. You know, protecting your social media photos is one thing. But if someone really wants to find you, they have other means of doing so and in tracking you down. So I would say Fox really would work best providing protection for the average citizen. But once you venture into the, the criminal world, there are a lot of factors that would make Fox not an impediment to those kinds of investigations. Okay, great. So that's good to know, definitely. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that, that was one of my main questions as I'm looking at this, like this, mm-hmm. uh, the battle between good and evil, right? And mm-hmm. how this can be used for good and it should be used for the average citizen, like you're saying, to yeah. protect themselves. But where does where is the line when it is someone that is has bad intentions and they're also using it? And so, it's so thanks tricky. for breaking it down. Yeah. yeah. It's so tricky. And that's something that's like, I'm not jaded about it yet, but it is certainly like a little bit disconcerting to look at every piece of research I produce and think like, oh, there is an illegitimate use to this technology. And like you can mitigate those risks, you can provide sort of caveats, but it is unfortunate that, Basically, everything is corruptible in some way. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And that's the the scary part. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, like all of the research that you're doing, with that being said, mm-hmm. 
do you foresee regulation coming in and trying to stop you from doing this? Like maybe government or mm. <laughs> what what was the what did you say earlier? Clear bit clear AI view. or Clearview. Yeah. Clearview.ai. Are they gonna are they gonna try and silence this by paying off some governor or senators? Well, luckily the tide of media attention is against places like Clearviewed right now. They just got sued by the state of Illinois and had to totally remove their operations from here. I don't know. I, I mean, on the plus side right now, both like popular opinion and it seems most government opinion, policy opinion is on the side of tamping down the abuses of big tech and thinking more thoughtfully about facial recognition. So I'm hopeful that the regulation will fall on the side of let's step back from this technology. Let's think about this technology. But who knows? Maybe someday the tide of public opinion will turn turn and will be seen as the bad guys. But I hope that doesn't happen for a long time or ever. <laughs> and so as you see machine learning moving forward and these uses being uh, applied to mm -hmm. so many different situations and you're seeing the potential for wrong in these situations. What do you feel needs to be done and how do you feel this can be slowed? Mm -hmm. I think every PhD student, master's student, undergraduate student who wants to be a machine learning developer or a software engineer should take a series of ethics courses in mm -hmm. teaching them how to think carefully and considerately about what they are designing. Because I, I think maybe there are a lot of different professions that have at times had a really broad influence on society. And right now it's software. And if these people are reshaping our world through these very seemingly innocuous code decisions, they need to be thoughtful about it. And I would say that's one line of a perhaps much broader approach that can be used to rein in these abuses and thoughtlessness. Mm, such a good point. And so then there is that ethics in their mind. They understand, well, maybe this might not be the best project to embark on. Or if someone wants me to do this at my job, maybe mm -hmm. it's not the, the best thing that I could make use of my time for. Yeah, so, I, I follow these like I, I read new papers that come out every day and if they catch my eye, I like read the abstract. And the number of papers that come out about, you know, improving emotion recognition or improving voice, like cloning and synthesis that have no statement about, you know, here's maybe an ethical consideration of this thing we're creating. It's kind of astounding, like the lack of thought that goes into the other side of the creation of these technologies. Yeah, that, that is fascinating to think about how that is, it might be the most important piece and it's not even mentioned no. at all in these papers. So that is not, not the best thing to think <laughs> about or harp on. <laughs> yeah. But this, this is something that your work is definitely trying to do and you're mm -hmm. trying to put forward. How else do you feel you can be like uh, putting forth more of this and trying to kind of rally the community mm. around, like you said, these PhD students to, so that it becomes more of a standard practice? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that sort of speaks to my future career goals in many ways. You know, there's only so much you can do as a PhD student, although I'll keep trying to produce research that is high quality and thoughtful and, um, and pushes back at these important questions. But, you know, I would love to become a professor someday and have students who I challenge to think more deeply about their research, who then have students who challenge their students to think more deeply about their research. You know, it's, it's about building a community that thinks well about these issues and then asking that community to be bold in pressing back when they see these issues arise. Um, so I don't have a very tangible plan right now. It's just me taking a lot of classes and having conversations. And my advisor's great at thinking about this too and some students in my lab. Um, but yeah, it's a growth area for everyone. And where would you like to see, as you look forward, where would you like to see this whole field of machine learning and AI 
advance to in the next years or potentially in the next 10 decades? I mean, sorry, 10 years or, you know, a couple decades? That's a great question. I mean, I, I hope it continues. I think there is value in this work and it will continue, I think, regardless of whether or not I want it to. Um, I hope it continues, but I hope it is accompanied by just more thoughtfulness that researchers don't pretend that they live in a bubble and they don't deceive themselves into thinking that this esoteric problem they're researching won't have societal impact. And perhaps that will sort of create a more balanced approach to this whole thing. Hmm. Yeah, thoughtfulness is very important as we move forward. And like you said, the ethics on this also is is huge. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, as we move forward, you know, because I remember when I was at university, cameras, the little cameras that you would take everywhere Mm -hmm, started to become a thing. And they would be around at all the parties or when you went out. And it became the first time in my life when it always felt like I was in the background of a, a mm, photo. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember because I, I, so I grew up in Arizona and mm-hmm. um, people would say, oh yeah, I grew up in a little hippie town of Arizona. And people would tell me like, oh, when you take a, when someone takes a picture of you, it takes a part of your soul, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so that was when cameras were first coming out. Mm-hmm. Now I really have never heard anyone say that for the longest time because it's become so normal for us yeah. to just constantly be taking pictures, yeah. right? And you don't hear anyone saying, oh, well, you're t- it's taking a piece of your soul or whatever this, um, this superstition is. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm wondering is along these lines of facial recognition, mm-hmm. if it is going to become so normalized for us mm-hmm. that there is no longer that like, are th- should they be recognizing my face or mm-hmm. shouldn't they be? Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. That's, I mean, you're right. It will probably happen that we'll adapt these technologies to the point that they're just part of life. Um, whether they should or shouldn't be is an interesting question. I don't know, like from a biometrics perspective, facial recognition is far more reliable as like, for example, face ID is a much better like security measure than fingerprinting or or something like that. So in that setting, I think, yeah, it it would make sense to use facial recognition and to normalize it because, again, there are bias issues that need to be corrected, um, but it, it is a more secure thing. But I, I don't know. I would hope that we're always a little skeptical of machines and of their ability to do things perfectly that humans themselves can't do perfectly. And that includes facial recognition. That includes self-driving cars. Like the fantasy that humans can create perfect things is just that, a fantasy. And if we don't remain skeptical of our own abilities, then we're just going to be delusional. Mm. And so how can we remain skeptical? What can we do? What are some things that... Mm we can do as these technologies come out? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think one thing that keeps me skeptical of, for example, social media is just not being on it all the time, like intentionally removing myself from the sphere where it is, you know, everywhere and then stepping back in and reminding myself that it's bizarre that this technology exists that is so... It's, it creates these bubbles and it, it's so just stilted. Um, hmm. And I think I would hope that similarly we as a society have spaces where we can step away and come back and, um, you know, be reminded that it is strange that we live in a world where cameras can recognize our face. But I don't really know what that looks like in practice. It's only a dream, unfortunately. <laughs> Turning off the phone and... Going on a retreat. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. But that's like kind of a privileged thing to do. So I would hope that there's yeah. more accessible things as well. Um, I'll have to think. I think that's a great question. Hmm. And so I think one thing that you spoke about is how our generation has lost its 
um, its ability to not be recognized, right? Yes. We've we've already been recognized so many times mm-hmm. that no matter if I grow a beard or if I shave my head, mm-hmm. Facebook still knows who I am and they're still going to be able to you know, pick me out. Yeah. But you would like for more generations down the line mm-hmm. to choose that yeah. anonymity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was wondering if you could speak on that a little bit more. Yeah, no, I have no delusions that my data is scattered in a million places around the internet and my identity is identifiable in a thousand different ways. And that's mm-hmm. really disconcerting. But, and I, I don't want to be nihilistic, but also I don't think there's a way that with technology I create right now, I can sort of rein in that loss. But I, I do think that we have an amazing opportunity as we start, as a new generation is born and as kids are born into a society that will never be without the internet unless, you know, something crazy happens. Um, and I think it's really important that we think not just about our privacy and safety, well, that is important, but about like the privacy and safety of those who are growing up in this ecosystem right now. Like Fox is one example of a tool that could be used to, as kids get on social media, to provide them with some recourse against, you know, the scraping of their images and the creation of facial recognition systems that recognize them. And I I think it's a really interesting line of thought and research, and it's one I'd like to explore more of Like, what proactive tools can we create right now that if someone were born now, that their life could be protected in a way that ours hasn't been because we have the benefit of hindsight? Um, So that's the dream. Hmm. And I'm wondering if the... Like, uh, I just think about kids on like younger kids on TikTok these oh. days and how you were talking about the, the China being one of these primary people who are using this oh. facial recognition in the wrong way and mm-hmm. we all know who who owns TikTok and I, I'm just wondering how you would make it like you said there's so many different ways that they can they can identify you not yeah. just with your facial recognition, but your voice or mm-hmm. whatever it may be. And mm-hmm. so these different, and I guess it would be something that would be native to a phone maker or whatever the technology is as mm-hmm. we move forward. It would just be on there. And yeah. Yeah. We're trying to, I mean, I, I think there's two parts to this answer. One, yes, there can be a technical solution. We're working to do something with Fox for the voice domain. So just like you can sort of distort your face, you could distort your voice so that no one can train a, a voice recognition system that recognizes you. So that's mm-hmm. that's something that I'm excited about and hopefully in the next couple of months we'll have some more results on. Um, but I, I think it's a both and. Like you can't have technical solutions without also policy and advocacy and education. And the combination of those things I think would be the most powerful set of weapons to fight back against this sort of thing Mm. and the the policy and advocacy like how do you see that playing out is that something that comes from the government level that they say hey look we need this to happen Mm. or we need we need you know the facial recognition to stop Mm. like how do you see that playing out i think I think it needs to come from all levels of society. I mean, yes, there's a role for government, absolutely, because they have the clout and the authority to stop illegal action or declare action illegal that is harmful in terms of facial recognition technology or other technologies. I also think it needs to be a, a parental thing and a school level thing of, you know, we teach health in, in schools. Why can't we also teach like digital privacy and because that is just as much a kid, a part of a kid's experience these days as is, you know, sports or any other extracurricular. Um, and obviously, like, parents have a responsibility to their kids to keep them safe and to to teach them about the world. And, like, that is something that needs to happen at that level as well. So it's, I think it's every system needs to work to think about this problem. And um, the combined result hopefully can be a safer world for kids. And so the way that I see what you're doing with Fox is like the 
the first iteration, right? Yes. Uh, and I imagine that there are going to be people that aren't going to like the fact that you're doing this. And so they're going to try to create something that counters that. Mm. Have you seen that happening already? Or do you suspect that will happen shortly? Mm. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it happening already. Most of the pushback we've seen on Fox has been more of the ilk of, well, this is silly. Why are you trying to protect something that has already been lost? Um, less so than like, I'm going to, I'm going to fight you and I'm going to develop a technology that, that can thwart this. But I'm sure there are people thinking about that. And as those things emerge, we'll hopefully develop techniques to, to thwart that. You know, it, it, the thing about security research is it's always a cat and mouse game. Unfortunately, you develop something, they fight back and you hope that the solutions you develop iterate you towards a better final one, but it's hard to know when you've reached it. Yeah, I mean, that was my next question in a way was like, I know you all are a smart group of people that are working on Fox and there's a handful of you. And then I think about Facebook or TikTok and how many people, machine learning engineers they have. Mm -hmm. And if they were tasked with this problem of, oh, hey, something's happening to our algorithms and they're not detecting faces, go Mm. fix it or Mm -hmm. find out what it is. I just wonder how long it would be before they had a solution to Fox. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, like from a technical perspective, I I do think Foxes could be hard to detect given that it's kind of a a non-deterministic algorithm. So it'd be hard for them to reverse engineer what's going on. Mm. But... I, I also think, looping back to an earlier point in our conversation, that's where this call for like ethics education for machine learning engineers comes back. Like, if you're working for Facebook and they're asking you to do something that's like violating people's privacy, I would hope that you would think twice about that action. Um, if not now, then maybe in the future when there's more widely available education to inform people about those issues. Yeah, and that's that's what comes back to exactly your point, like where you're getting more pushback is why are you doing this with something that's already been lost? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think about an engineer working at Facebook Mm -hmm. and they are tasked with figuring out why is this not picking up these faces and for them ethically, I foresee it being really hard for them to say, well, actually we shouldn't do this. Yeah. Because they've been doing it for so long. Mm-hmm. It's already mm-hmm. been happening. So how are they now going to take a stand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing our society is really bad at is giving grace to people who come out and say, I was wrong. You know, who who publicly change their stance on something. I think we're far more willing to just punish them for holding their old opinion, then celebrate them for changing their mind. And I would hope that we could be better about that. You know, when people realize that perhaps their work has been harmful and they change their mind, let's encourage them in that and and celebrate that rather than just shaming them for holding something incorrectly in the past. And maybe that culture shift could help these kinds of changes of mindset be easier because you're no longer afraid of what people will tell you if you change your mind. Hmm. And so we kind of touched on it already, but I, I'd love to know what other ways you feel are there for machine learning to abuse our privacy. Mm. <laughs> so there's a lot of them. I, I mean, it's, it's privacy is one thing. I think privacy speaks to the issue of like how data is obtained and how it is used. And there are, you know, a lot of different companies that track you online without your consent and take that data and use it to feed advertising algorithms or credit score algorithms or facial recognition technology. And that's a problem for sure. But there's also an issue of equity in that, you know, not only are these models relying on data that they maybe shouldn't have access to, but often these models make incorrect assumptions about who you are because of... Mm you know, competing factors such as socioeconomic status that get encoded into the way they make their decisions. Um, So there's a whole host of issues and, um, you know, I could give specifics, but it's also very broad. (laughs) 
I, yeah, I'd love, well, I'd love to hear a few use cases. And then I'd also mm-hmm. love to hear what you feel are the most important. And obviously mm-hmm. for you right now, Fox is one of the biggest things I would imagine that you're, you're, you have in your life. You're working yeah. on it and mm-hmm. you're making sure that it is a successful project. Mm-hmm. And so I understand that facial recognition is probably for you a huge factor in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd, I'd also love to hear what other pieces you feel really passionate about. Mm. Yeah, there's basically any algorithm that ends up in government or in criminal prosecution, I find myself kind of worked up about, about sometimes. Mm. Like there's a, a sentencing algorithm that can sometimes be used to decide, you know, how long sentences are allocated for that is often, it's been found, tends to make those sentencing decisions along factors that correlate with race. That's really concerning to me. That's really frightening um, that we're just offloading the work of thinking about something to just an algorithm that does so imperfectly. Um, Another one that really gets me are these college ranking algorithms that tend to use different sort of arbitrary factors to decide what are the best colleges, but often ignore cost as one of those factors. So essentially they, they ask colleges to do all these things to be considered best, but then they don't actually factor in affordability, which then makes, you know, college less accessible for people whose life might be more substantially changed by that experience. Um, so yeah, there, those are a few more tangible examples. Um, but in, in general, just the side effects that are not often thought about in the creation of these algorithms are concerning. Hmm. Yeah. And that goes back to the education piece. Yeah. It's huge, right? The and education piece and also that like cultural humility that like we are willing to question ourselves, willing to step into the space of acknowledging that we are biased or imperfect or nearsighted and being able to publicly change something that we previously took a strong stance on, whether it's an algorithm and a product or a personal opinion. Yeah, that's fascinating. That is, it echoes uh, one of our other guests, Mm -hmm. uh, Jason Lewis, who was talking about how we need to be able to look at the decisions we're making and Mm -hmm. look at really step back from the decision because sometimes we think it's either a or b Mm -hmm. we're making we come to a you know uh y in the road and Mm -hmm. we think well it's either right or left Mm -hmm. but his whole thing was talking about how we should look at why we feel we need to make this decision in the first place Mm -hmm. and what it is that is driving us to get to this y in the road and so Mm -hmm. uh so it's it's fascinating to to think about that. Now changing gears a little bit, yeah. I know in another paper that you've written, you talked about like deep neural networks and honeypots that you've created with those. Yeah, and can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So this paper was. Um, how do I? Get, I'll I'll back up. So there's, there's a, a line of attacks that exist against neural networks called adversarial examples. They're similar in spirit to Fox in a way, in that you can take an image, say, of like a dog and tweak it slightly, and a neural network will classify it as a cat or a pigeon or, or whatever. So you can add these changes to images that are imperceptible, and they'll fool a model because a model doesn't really look at an image. It only looks at the mathematical content of an image. So this honeypot paper was a defense we were creating to help defend models against those kinds of attacks. Um, Because say you are a machine learning model in a self-driving car and you're designed to like classify speed limit signs or something. And someone has put one of these adversarial patterns on the sign and you're fooled into thinking that's a you know, a stop sign or a yield sign, that's that's quite problematic because mm. you don't want a machine learning model to be fooled by these subtle perturbations. So the honeypot is something we embed. We train these weird 
nuances into the model such that if someone tries to construct one of these patterns or misclassifications against the model, you can easily detect it because it kind of falls right into our honeypot and we can look in there and see, oh, look, this, this bad example is exactly where we would expect it to be if it were indeed bad. Um, so we can use the internal workings of the model to suss out when a bad input is being presented to it. And are there, is this like trying to combat bad actors in that they would do things like attacks that you're talking about? Is this like hacking that would try to happen through this? I mean, you gave the autonomous car example mm -hmm. and I guess there are people maybe that want destruction from autonomous cars and so they put stickers on stop yeah. signs and make it seem like a, mm -hmm. a 60 mile an hour sign or something. But mm -hmm. I'm wondering what other ways you saw this playing out. One, one really interesting one is ad blockers. So there's, an, there's a growth in the ad blocker movement where they're trying to use like neural networks to classify what is and isn't an ad and then block it. And if you're savvy enough, you can create an ad that can fool these neural networks because it has certain properties that sort of cause the neural network to misclassify it. So our defense could help these ad blockers better identify the content that's, you know, being maliciously tweaked to evade them and prevent those ads from actually being shown. So that's another sort of use case of these defenses against adversarial attacks is, you know, when people try to evade ad blockers. And so do you see this being something that you could generalize and you could use it on many other um, use cases that so that you and I look at it like in the from what I understood from the paper is you could also tell when someone was trying to do this. Yeah. So you could identify these bad actors mm -hmm. and take action if necessary and mm -hmm. so i'm wondering do you feel that that would be something that you could you could generalize and you could start to see who was out there trying to attack different mm -hmm. models probably it would depend on how savvy the adversary is cuz you know if they're if if they're like querying a google hosted model they might use different accounts or something that would make it hard for us to establish a pattern of behavior um mm -hmm. But yeah, in general, the idea of a defense that also can link a bad input back to a particular person would hopefully be something that could generalize and, and do more than just stop the attack from happening, but perhaps link it back to, to the attacker and do something more. That would be great. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that paper is adopted. Yeah, yeah. So as we're Coming down to the end of time, mm -hmm. I want to ask just a few more questions. One is, as this war, we could say, maybe it's not a war, uh, about staying private mm -hmm. or not um, starts to play out, how in your mind do you see, do you see it like advancing are there things that you would like to to definitely like make note of as we start to move forward? Hmm. This is weird, but I kind of see it in analogy to the automotive industry in some ways, like and and specifically like the safety of using cars because you know, right now we're kind of making Model Ts and we're turning them off the production line. We don't totally understand what's going on, but we think it's cool and we're going to keep doing it. And I, I think the way I see it progressing is similar to, you know, how we developed better cars that were safer, but that came through a combination of regulation and consumer activism. And even now, like the use and operation of cars is, it relies both on the consumer making correct decisions and following you know, laws and having common sense and automa automakers, you know, being thoughtful and careful about how they design their product. And I would hope that the, the war on privacy war progresses similarly, where there's a lot of different forces at play. Um, 
both consumers in articulating like what actually privacy means to them and developing a better sense of what it is we're actually trying to protect because that's such a broad term and you know model makers and legislators developing reasonable thoughtful measures that respond to consumer needs and protect them as the system continues to evolve so i have no illusion that it's going to be perfect and that we're going to have just perfect privacy although that in itself is like an undefinable term but i think if it is a conversation and it is something that progresses with um a lot of care hopefully we can reach a point where more people are protected and more people are satisfied than exist right now yeah and that's such an interesting point how you talk about people will have to do their their part also right mm-hmm. using their common sense using what they know like when we're driving cars and we follow the the rules of the road yeah and we know that these are things we can do with the car and these are things we shouldn't do. And, mm-hmm. and so, and if we do them, we're the ones putting ourselves at risk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There is a, yeah, there is a point where consumer commerce, common sense has to enter the arena. Like we can't put the load of privacy entirely on the backs of companies because a, they don't always have consumers best interest at heart and b like, we have skin in this game too. Hmm. It's a fascinating point. I I like that. So the last question I have for you, Emily, is are you a robot? (laughs) No, I'm real. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate talking to you. I, I love hearing your vision of things and I hope that we can chat again in a little bit. Maybe you can tell us about the new things, the new advancements of Fox or whatever it is that you will be working on next because I'm sure it will not disappoint. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been, it's been great talking to you. All right. Cheers. Have a great day. Thank you.